those are some encouraging words, especially if you're a little bit like me this morning, and you may be coming in uh, maybe a little tired from Christmas week, a little tired from cooking and cleaning and presents and celebration. It's a wonderful time, but sometimes it just kind of wipes you out. So the good news this morning is that we're going to be talking about weakness, so it should be very appropriate for how some of you feel. Uh, But we're going to be looking at a passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And it's really an interesting book, 2 Corinthians. Paul's interactions with the Corinthian church itself are very interesting. It, like us, is a pretty dysfunctional church. And often Paul's having to say, no, 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 don't do that. No, you really should be doing this. Please stop doing that. Uh, it's, it's fascinating. But in, in this letter, Paul is having to defend himself. He's having to defend himself to the church saying, no, I, I really am a true apostle and the message I gave you is, a, is, a, is the true gospel. Because what has happened is some have come in, some teachers have come into the Corinthian church that Paul has kind of nicknamed the super apostles because they're super better at everything. And they have started teaching a false gospel. And these people have come in and they said, we're, we're pretty great. Look at our resume that we will give you ourselves. We're awesome. And we have great signs and visions to show for it. You should follow us. And you know what? That Paul guy, I mean, he carries a big pen. He writes a, a good letter, but he's, he's kind of unimpressive in person. You know, and he, he's actually, he's kind of weak. Should you, should you really be following a guy that's been beaten and taken advantage of and, and oppressed like he has? Is, is that really an apostle? Or shouldn't it be someone like us that's successful that's thriving, that has a, a pretty good resume to show for our strength. And so Paul is addressing it, and he's a little bit frustrated, and there's some beautiful nuggets of sarcasm where Paul is having to boast in himself, to give his own resume, but he does it with a twist. What he boasts in is, sure, I'll boast. I'm more of an apostle because in the pre- chapter before the one we read, he says, I've been shipwrecked more. I've been beaten more. I've been stoned. I've been thrown in prison more. My money is where my mouth is. I'm a true apostle. I have been through it. And you'll know it by actually what I've suffered. And in the passage we find ourselves in today, Paul is really going to push on boasting in weakness. Taking the argument of these super apostles and turning it on its head and saying, God's way is a lot different than that. That way of prosperity, that way of success. That's really not what God has called us to, but something greater. So as we read, there's a few more, maybe trickier things in the passage that I'm going to try to explain as we go along. So I'm going to pray before we get started and ask for God's blessing and his wisdom today. So please pray with me. God, thank you that you give us your word and it is real and it is authentic and it meets our very lives. It is such a gift to us. So would you give us a clarity today? Would you give us conviction? Holy Spirit, would you be at work, not just letting us hear these words and forgetting them, but applying them to our hearts? And God, the things that are not true, uh, would you block them from even coming out? Would you let them be forgotten? But would your word stand forever and change us to be more like Christ today? We ask it in his name. Amen. So the words that we're going to be reading today, the scripture will be on the screen behind me. It's also on the insert in your bulletin. And we also have these good old-fashioned Bibles. If you have one of those, you can look at it in there as well. And we're going to be looking at, starting in verse 11, sorry, verse 30 of chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians, 
then skipping down to read the first part of chapter 12. So read along with me. Paul begins, If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. And then to chapter 12. I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Here Paul is addressing his critics. He's like, I don't want to boast. There's no point in it. But if they're going to boast, sure, fine. I can meet them in that. They want to boast in revelations. I have some things I could say to that as well. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Paul is most likely here talking about himself, but because he is being so humble, so distancing himself from putting credit in the revelations God is giving him, he's saying, I know a guy, I'm the guy, but I know a guy, I won't speak in the first person about it, who was caught up to the third heaven. We don't usually talk about layers of heaven, but he's kind of speaking in an idiom of the day, meaning the highest heaven, where where God himself dwells. I had a revelation. I saw that, but I'm not really going to talk about it. And I I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body. I do not know. God knows. Again, he's not saying this is something I've conjured. It's just something God did. And he heard things that cannot be told, which may not be uttered. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weakness. Paul's essentially saying, that's their resume? Yeah, I could play that resume too, but that's not what I'm going to call attention to. That's not what I'm going to boast in, because that's not what matters. It's interesting to note that this happened 14 years ago, and Paul has never brought it up in any of his letters. It's not something he puts a lot of weight on. He's saying, yes, God gave me this, it happened, but it's not something I'm attaching to my resume. It's not something I'm going to find strength in or boast in. He goes on in verse 6. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, maybe hinting that the super apostles are not. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. See, I'm not giving you a resume. You've seen me, you know me. Judge for yourself. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me to keep me from becoming conceited. That doesn't need any explanation, right? We can, we can just move on right past that. Let's push pause for a second. Scripture likes to use some devices that we'll skip over sometimes. What's happening in here when he says, this was given to me, is called a divine passive. He doesn't say, God has given it to me, but that's the way we're supposed to read it. It was given to me, meaning by God himself. God is the one that allowed this to happen. At the same time, you have him saying it's a messenger of Satan sent to torment him. So there's evil influence at work, but it is still under the submission and direction of God. These are hard truths for us to hold together. We don't always like tension. But like in the book of Job, the things that happen in this world are still under the authority and the control of God. Moreover, he uses them to accomplish his own ends. And we see it in that one little verse, those two truths held side by side and back to back. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. Appropriate response for children to their father. God, this hurts. Take it away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. 
Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. So, we can go home. Easy to understand. Everybody's got that. We're good now. I don't think we like to talk about weakness as much. I think we really like to talk about strength. Particularly, we love stories of overcoming the odds. And one of the best books I've read um, is one called Unbroken. Uh, It's the story of Louis Zamperini. Phenomenal athlete, uh, Olympian, ends up joining the army and is in the what they call then the, the air reserves of the army, essentially the pre-Air Force. And he's, he's on a bomber. So he's out in the Pacific Ocean. They're, they're doing a recon mission, and Louis's plane goes down. And he and only two other people survive that, and they're out stranded in life rafts. And somehow they overcome 47 days stuck at sea. That's mind-blowing. I think it's still the record, and we hope no one ever beats that it's crazy. During his time, Louis has to fight off sharks with his fists and with paddles that keep buffeting the rafts he's in, trying to flip them out and make them dinner. His strength somehow allows him to persist, to have the wherewithal to know to fight these things off, to have the patience and ingenuity to know rain only comes every few days. We better collect it so that we don't die of thirst. He somehow keeps himself from going mad out in the sea, uh, almost alone with just one friend by now. They find ways to catch fish, and somehow against all these odds, Louis is unbroken, hence the name of the book. He fights through, he digs deep, he has an internal strength that is unconquerable. And then his nice reward for surviving that is that he is captured by the Japanese and is sent to an internment camp. He's at a few different camps over two years where he meets someone they call the bird, who is kind of an overseer of the camp, who really is sadistic and takes great pleasure in the pain of the prisoners, particularly in the pain of Louis. There is one point where to teach Louis and I think one or two other people some respect, he has all the prisoners line up, walk by, and repeatedly punch him in the face until he learns respect. This went on for two hours before he eventually was knocked unconscious. Now that is a man whose spirit is unbreakable, who is made of iron and stands up under all circumstances. And we love stories like that. Rocky, Gladiator, Braveheart, they're kind of all the same story. The same theme of resiliency, of courage, of fighting through all the odds and finding strength love stories like that. But I want to suggest that maybe that's not even the most important part of Louis Zamperini's story. The the linchpin of the story actually happens much later, when Louis, after the war, is really struggling to cope. He probably is suffering from some pretty bad PTSD and becomes an alcoholic. He can't handle it, so he buries himself inside of a bottle, and his life begins to crumble. This unbreakable man is finding himself at the end of his strength. And finally, finally, Louis embraces his weakness. His marriage is falling apart. 
He finally relents when his wife says, please come to this Billy Graham crusade. I want you to be there. He says, fine, sure, great. And it's there that Louis finally throws his hands up and says, I am not strong enough. I don't have it. I I am weak and I need help. And he calls out to God and becomes a follower of Christ. God leads him out of alcoholism. He leads him into a better marriage, to growth, to kind of a phenomenal life, to the point where he finds such power in his weakness that he's traveling to Japan in hopes of finding the bird who abused him so that he might offer forgiveness. Perhaps it's more of a story about what happens when we embrace our weakness than the resiliency of the human spirit. But we don't like weakness. It's almost as if we're allergic to it. None of us likes to feel out of control. None of us likes to feel like we we are not enough, like we don't have strength. We hate weakness, and we avoid it, push it down, and blind ourselves to it at all costs, which is really unfortunate because God really likes to use weakness. It's one of the beautiful ironies of Scripture that always God always goes for the weak things to show his glory. Don't take my word for it. Think of the Jewish people in captivity. These are people that have been slaves for 400 years. He leads them out. They're grumbling. They're complaining. They're turning against him. And he says, you're going to be my kingdom of priests that advances my name into the whole world. You kind of want to be like, really? That's, that was your plan? Okay. He loves using weakness. Think of the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. The Midianites are oppressing them. Life is pretty bad. They're under somebody else's authority. Finally, they're able to muster up 32,000 troops, and they're going to fight. They're going to kick off the yoke of this oppressor. And God says, you got too many. Get rid of some. You can imagine Gideon being like, really? Come on. I barely got 32,000. Drop 10,000. He said, okay, God, I got 22,000. How's that? You've got too many. Get rid of some. He comes back with 300 men, and that's how God brings deliverance. He loves working in weakness. Think of what we celebrated last week. God's Messiah is born in the backwoods of the world. In Israel, in Bethlehem, in a manger, has to flee for his life to Egypt. That's your Messiah? That's your plan? That you are going to save and fix what is wrong in the world through an itinerant Jewish teacher who will die, that's your plan. God loves working through weakness. Think about the church, the apostles who are hiding, cowering in fear lest they become like Jesus, crucified. God says, you are going to be the ones who are going to write and establish the New Testament and launch the church. Really? That's your 18? And he looks to us, his church, and says, you... My people are going to be the ones that spread my love and my kingdom throughout the world. And I kind of want to look at myself and be like, really? That's your plan? God loves working through weakness. And we kind of hate it. And that's why we so need this passage of scripture this morning. Because what we're going to find is that when we embrace our weakness... Three things we see in this passage. That we find an awe 
sufficient grace, that when we embrace our weakness, we find a far greater power and a much higher glory. Let's look at the first, an all-sufficient grace. The thorn Paul is talking about, it's clearly a deep struggle for him. The imagery of a barb that sticks in you, you can't get out and continues to hurt and put pressure and constantly limit you. It's not something we like. And there's a lot of theories about what this was. Physical ailment, spiritual attack. We don't know. Paul didn't say, but maybe that's on purpose. Because, you know, I think we know sometimes what it's like to feel a thorn in our flesh. Now, we're not apostles. It's a little different. But we know what it's like to face temptation and addiction that we just can't shake and feel like maybe, maybe given up. We just want to cry out, God, set me free. What is this? How am I still trapped in this place? We know what it is to have a heavy heart over things like family who do not know Jesus. Things like loss and grief that sometimes you experience at times like Christmas so deep it knocks the breath out of you. We know what it's like to feel thorns where we are alone and lonely and wonder, does anyone know me? Does anyone love me? We know thorns of depression where the night seems so dark that you think it may actually swallow you or even that it already has. We know the thorns of struggling with money or jobs and wondering if I can't work, if I, if I can't provide for those I love, who even am I? What do I have to offer? We know the thorns of physical suffering, of persistent illness, of problems with vision, with mobility, with aging, migraines, chronic pain, suffering. Where you think, will this ever end? Will I ever be free? We know what it's like to have thorns in the flesh. We can relate to Paul. And Paul's, God says to us, just like he says to Paul in verse 9, my grace is sufficient for you. I think our response should just be like Paul where we pray to God, we ask Him to take it away, but, but sometimes He doesn't. And if I may take a brief aside, there are some who will tell you that if you are suffering and you are not delivered, it may be because you don't have enough faith. Unless they are God, they cannot know that. And I would like to see someone tell Paul that he did not have enough faith in God, and that's why he was not delivered from his suffering. Sometimes God allows us to persist in suffering for our good and his glory, and that is that. So let me just encourage you that that is what scripture says. And like Paul, God answers us, and in our weakness we find a gracious Savior who says, I see you, I know what you are going through, and I promise you my grace is enough. And what this is saying is that you will not find a slice of humanity where you can go that is so dark and so painful and so difficult that God's grace to you will not be present and will not be enough. And it may feel like it. 
You may not have any clue how it's shaking out, but God has promised you, my grace is enough. I am enough. What a comfort these words are to us. As much as you suffer, there will always be more grace, more love, and more sustaining than you can possibly know. But if we, if we run and if we hide from weakness like we so often do, whereas I like to somehow distract myself to where my pain doesn't exist, Netflix, whatever it happens to be, Facebook, you, you pick your distraction of choice because there are many. But if we run, if we hide from this and are not willing to face and enter into our weakness, I fear that we are running and hiding from the grace of God. Where he says, embrace your weakness and find that I am enough. I am all sufficient. My grace is enough for you. When we embrace this weakness, we find that he meets us here and he comforts us with himself. But what we also find is that in weakness, in this type of suffering, God reminds us that there's a bigger story at play. We are often tempted, at least I am, Maybe none of you are like me, but I'm tempted to hold on to things in this world and say, this is it. This is as good as it gets. This is the good stuff here. And the thorns are sometimes a reminder that there is a bigger story. And that the world is broken and that God has acted in it and is bringing hope and deliverance. And the encouragement we find from that is that God does not waste an ounce of our suffering. He does not waste it. And I know that because the same book tells us that. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 17. It says, For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. He's not wasting it, friends. He's not wasting your tears your suffering, or your struggles. And he promises that they are at work doing things in you, preparing glory for you that is to come. And the darkness you feel and the darkness you face is not the end of the story, but what is, is the glory that is being worked in you, even now. His grace is sufficient for you. Find comfort and peace knowing that he will be enough and that he is continuing his story and it is headed somewhere. When we embrace our weakness, we find, we find that all-sufficient grace. We also find a far greater power. Uh, when we fail to embrace weakness, we often start thinking a little higher of ourselves than we should. Uh, and to move to a slightly lighter moment, several years ago, Volkswagen had a great commercial and because Star Wars just came out, I think it's appropriate. I don't know if you remember, there's a small child dressed as Darth Vader. And he walks around his room, and he faces up the treadmill, and he goes, and nothing happens. He walks over, okay, there's his dog. Nothing happens. His mom's got a plate of cookies. Nothing happens. In despair, he goes out to his father's car who's just rolled in. And then all of a sudden, the car starts. Looks back at his parents, looks at the car. I did that. 
His dad's holding the clicker where you press it twice and the engine turns on. And all of a sudden he thinks, yeah, I've got the force. I just turned a car on. And it's a cute story, but he was perhaps thinking a little higher of his power than he ought to. And the real power was standing about 10 feet behind him with a remote. It's cute, but that's us. We often think a little bit higher about our power and our ability to control and be strong in a situation that is actually appropriate. But the good news is that we are offered a far better power. In the second half of verse 9, he says, My power is made perfect in weakness. God speaking to Paul. And Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Because that's a far greater power. That's the power that has risen Christ from the dead. That's at work even in us. That is the power that is reconciling all things to God. All things. Things in heaven and on earth. That is a far greater power than anything you or I wield. And what's ironic is that Paul finds this power in boasting about his weakness. We'd have to kind of pull Paul aside and be like, Paul, I don't think you quite the boasting thing. I'm not sure you fully understand how that's supposed to work. Because when Paul boasts, he says things like, I'm the chief of sinners. When Paul boasts, he says, I am the slave of all saints. I'm the lowest of all. He says, I count everything that I would have counted my credit as a loss compared to knowing Christ. He boasts in his weakness because Paul realizes it's not about him. It's not about his strength. And he can stand there and say, I have nothing to protect here. This isn't my territory. I have nothing to hide. I can be real in my weakness because my hope, my strength, and my identity is not in myself, but it is in a far greater power that rests in God. Sure, I'm a weak. I'm I'm a fool. Whatever. It doesn't matter because it's not about me. It's about the power of Christ within me. When we trust in our own power, a lot of times what we end up doing is becoming defensive, protective, because we have to hold on to it, because that's all that we have. Uh, We start putting our true selves behind us and put out a strong face that's really fake, a face of having it together, a face of power, because that's what we're putting our hope in. But Christ offers us something far greater He offers us a power that sets us free. Our power, we have to keep. His power keeps us. Our power, we have to cling to, lest it be gone and taken away. His power clings to us. Our power, we have to protect and preserve. His power protects and preserves us. And in His power, we can find Freedom. Because we can embrace our weakness. We're free to take off the mask to know that it's not about us. We are free to let our true selves be out there because we know we are already known and loved because of the power of the gospel. If we embrace our weakness, we can let go. We can take off the facade and just be our normal broken selves who are hoping in Christ. It's one point there. Second, if we embrace his power and our weakness, we're able to be repentant. If you are clinging to control and power, you are not going to say you're sorry for things because that lets down a chink in the armor. 
It's weakness. It's vulnerability. But if your hope is in someone else's power that is stronger, that is better, you can say, yeah, I messed up. Of course, I'm a broken sinner. And I need Jesus just like you do. And my hope is in him so I can repent full-heartedly knowing that I am rooted in my identity in who Jesus is and what he has done. We find a far greater power to enter our brokenness and to be real people that are loved dearly by God. But we also find a much higher glory. We all have known that person, the one-upper, the person that never heard a story that they couldn't give you one better for. It's such a common idea in our psyche that it even created a character on Saturday Night Live called Penelope. Some of you have seen Penelope skits. It's painful and funny. Well, there is one where LeBron James is a guest, and they're at a charity auction, and LeBron James is auctioning himself off to raise money for children. And so he's up there telling a little bit about himself, and, and he says, well, you know, I'm, I'm LeBron James. Uh, I was the youngest person to ever score a 1,000 points in the NBA. And Penelope comes up and says, I was also the youngest person in the NBA to score a 1,000 points. I actually was 11 and a half when I did it, and I scored 10,000 points in one game. You're kind of like, what is happening here? LeBron James kind of shrugs it off and is like, okay. Uh, LeBron continues, well, I was actually, uh, my rookie year, I was voted rookie of the month every month. Penelope, I actually was voted rookie of the month every month as well. And I was also voted rookie of the week every week. And this very minute, I was just voted rookie of the minute. It just happened. They just voted. So I'm a little bit better than LeBron James. You're kind of like, okay, we're getting a little bit absurd here. He's like, okay. LeBron continues, well, you know, I, I, I do some philanthropy. I donate turkeys at Thanksgiving to families in need. Penelope. I, I also donate turkeys, so I'm a little bit better. And I donate lambs and chickens as well, too. And I was actually at the first Thanksgiving. I brought maize. Who are you? What are you talking about? And it continues to the point that she says she invented charities and, you know, it just goes higher and higher, one-upping and one-upping, thoroughly stealing the glory of a pretty worthy guy who's pretty exceptional at his craft and what he does. And she just keeps taking away from his glory and pointing to herself. We don't like (laughs) one-uppers. It's not a lot of fun. But when we try to rely on our own strength and ability... We are essentially saying that we are the master of our lives, that we have a better plan, and we're essentially stealing glory from God, saying, really, it's about us and what we can do. If you don't think that's you, which I'm sure you will, I'm not a one-upper, maybe ask this question. When, when trouble arises, when something comes up in your life, what's your first instinct? I try to make plans and figure out a way out of it. Is it that Or is it to pray, to ask God for his help and his guidance? It's a pretty quick diagnostic of what we are thinking will actually make the difference and change things for us. Paul boasts in weakness, and he says he does it for the sake of Christ. It's not about Paul, it's about God. Even Paul's boast is designed to put attention away from himself and onto Christ. It's so countercultural for us because the world tells us, and we often believe it, that your hope is in what you can look like, 
the, the kind of stuff that you can gather, the prestige that you can build, who you are and what you do makes you worthy. And we say, sounds good. Especially at Christmas time. We're marketed to out the ears. This is going to make you happy. This will make your life okay. And when we buy into that, when we believe it, when we look to, point to, and build up ourselves, we are saying, look at me. Look at what I have done. Stealing glory from God. And Paul's saying, why don't you just let go and grab onto Christ and be the opposite of a one-upper where you can say, yeah, yeah, I may be weak, I may be feeble, but look at that. Look at what God has done. Look at how strong he is. Look at his love, his unending grace. It's not about me. And when we embrace our weakness, we find that out. It's really not about us. And we can point to something that is far greater, far more worthy than trusting in ourselves. And then like Paul, we can accept any indignity or slight because we know it's about bringing glory to Christ and not to ourselves. Let me just remind you, when we cling to our own strength and our own power, we're stealing glory from God. Okay, so we, we've covered the big points here, but we said, this is hard. We don't like weakness. So what could possibly give us the courage Give us the desire to embrace things like our weakness. And I think it only comes when we look at Jesus. In weakness, Messiah came to the earth to be born in a human form, to be born as man in a manger. In weakness, the one who created the cosmos was limited in his glory to grow up and develop as a human In weakness, he was argued against, mocked, and called demon-possessed, the one who is Lord over all. In weakness, he was arrested, abused, mocked, whipped, and crucified. Embracing that weakness, and then in power, he was raised from the dead by the power of God. And the only way that we can embrace our weakness is if that love, the love from and for Christ, compels us. When we see the links that he would go to know us, to engage us, that love must compel us to be able to enter weakness or anything for the sake of knowing him and his grace, his power, and his glory. The love of Christ should compel us. But let me also offer a warning. I don't think it's too strong to say if we can't embrace our weakness, we can't fully know the gospel. Because it is only in your weakness that you can go to God and say, I'm broken. I do not have it all together. I will not get it all together. And I need someone to make right all the wrongs I've done and to heal me. It is only in our brokenness that we get that we actually need something. It is only in our weakness that we're able to call out and say, Lord, save me. And if we can't embrace our weakness, we cannot cling on to Christ. So if you are still hoping in yourself this morning, your ability to figure it out, let go. There is something far better he offers us than our own strength is the love of a powerful, amazing God. 
And when we embrace our weakness, we taste it deeply and sweetly. And that is my hope and prayer for you this morning, that in your weakness, you may find Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, you alone are worthy of honor and glory, and so we give it to you this morning. Thank you that you came to a weak people, not expecting us to get it right or to be better or stronger, but you came and offered us yourself. And God, we're so scared of letting go of control. We're so scared of being weak. Would you allow us to find the sweet freedom of embracing our weakness and finding that you are enough, that you are powerful, and then that you may receive the glory. We ask this in the name of our Savior Christ. Amen.